The Gospel of John, chapter 10, we'll be reading verses 22 through 30. And seeing how it is that God delivers us from the estate of sin and misery and brings us into an estate of grace and salvation through our Redeemer by a sheep-like faith. John chapter 10, verse 22, give attention to God's Word. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we give you thanks for the Lord Jesus who has fulfilled your word. We pray now that you would be with us this afternoon as we've gathered again to hear your word. You would fill us with your spirit that we indeed might hear the voice of Christ and in hearing him might follow him. We pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, throughout the scriptures, God's people are described and characterized as his sheep. In fact, if you go back to the book of Samuel and you pay attention to the stories of the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David, the the characterization of these two men is given to us by the animals that they're responsible for. You remember the story of Saul, and his father lost a certain group of his farm animals, and Saul was sent to go find them, and then Samuel comes and helps Saul find those animals. You remember the animals he was looking for. He had lost his father's donkeys. And Saul was put in charge of donkeys. Well, when we turn to the story of David, and uh, Samuel goes to hold the feast at uh, Jesse's house, David is not present because he's taking care of his father's sheep. So in both cases, the king is described by the animals he is in charge of. The donkey, of course, representing rebellion, stubbornness, and characterizing the rule of Saul. He was rebellion, he was rebellious, and stubborn. The sheep, of course, characterizing docility and trust in the shepherd. And of course, David is the picture of a man who trusted in the Lord and was humble under the Lord's reign. Well, likewise, in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospel of John, This description comes up again and again. God's people are described as sheep. And what we find in this passage is that Christ begins to explain the kind of faith that God's sheep exercise. Specifically, he tells us two things in this passage. He tells us the ground or the causes of a sheep-like faith and the benefits of a sheep-like faith. 
He tells us the causes of a sheep-like faith and the benefits of a sheep-like faith. What we're going to see in this passage are three things. Verses 22 through 24 is the context. 22 through 24 is the context. 25 through 27 are the causes of a sheep-like faith. And verses 28 through 30 are the benefits of a sheep-like faith. Verses 22 through 24 is the context. Verses 25 through 27 are the causes. And verses 28 through 30 are the benefits of a sheep-like faith. And what we're going to learn specifically is that because Christ is the king who is greater than Solomon, his sheep are eternally saved. Because Christ is the king who is greater than Solomon, his sheep are eternally saved by faith. And so we begin by looking at the context. Now you'll remember in other passages in the Gospels, Christ is speaking to the Pharisees and he tells them that a greater than Solomon is here. And if Solomon himself was so uh, well arrayed and was so wise that the Queen of Sheba came to honor him, how much more should you, who is in the presence of one greater than Solomon, honor me? Well, we see in the context here that Solomon is referenced in what's happening in the context. Notice that they say it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. What I think John is doing here, through the way that he does it in his Gospels, he he will often say the same thing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are saying, but he does it in a very subtle and indirect way. John is the only one that makes reference that this is happening on Solomon's porch. Now, why would it be important for us to know this is happening on Solomon's porch? Because John is setting up Christ as the true shepherd who is greater than Solomon. Now, remember who Solomon was. Remember who Solomon was in the history of the kings. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, pardon me. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. Now, of course, you know the context here of 2 Samuel 12. David has sinned with Bathsheba. David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet, and David and Bathsheba's first son is dead. But God made a promise to David that David's son, the fruit of his loins, would reign as God's king, and God would regard this son as his own son. Look at what happens with the birth of Solomon. Verse 24 of 2 Samuel 12. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him, and he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now this is is one of these episodes in the histories of the Old Testament that's easy to look over. 
because it's very short, and then the story moves on to the rest of David's family. I want you to pay careful attention to the name that Solomon is given by the Lord. The Lord, through Nathan the prophet, calls him Jedidiah. Jedidiah means the beloved of Jehovah. The beloved of Jehovah. Now, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Christ, who comes in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant and in fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament, John describes this word who became flesh in this way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we've all received grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Notice that Christ is called the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. And now we return to John 10 in the closer context. Last week we looked at the doctrine of Christ in John 10, verse 17. And notice what Christ says about his relationship to the Father. John 10, 17. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. So with this theme of Solomon's relationship to David and Solomon's relationship to Christ, Solomon was the, the son of David who was the beloved of Jehovah. Now John is presenting Christ as the greater son of David and the greater Solomon who is the beloved of Jehovah because uh, Christ is able to do what Solomon was not able to do. I think this is all implied in the context, and this is what makes the question of the Jews that much more ironic. Verse 24, then the Jews surrounded him, and they said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And you notice the irony of their question. You know, uh, this past week I had a friend come visit us, and he's, he's a friend from seminary. And he is getting ready to take up a church in Australia. He's, he's from Virginia as well, and he and I love Virginia history. And so when he was visiting with us, we wanted to go see some of the historical sites that are very close uh, to our region here. We went to go see the grave of a man called Robert Louis Dabney, one of the great Southern Presbyterians. And if you've ever been to a famous historical site like that, that's named for a famous person... You begin thinking about this person, who they are, what they represented, what virtues you can emulate, what faults you can avoid. In this context, they're in Solomon's porch. And these Jews who had been trained up in the Scriptures should have been thinking of these things. They should have been thinking of, who is the beloved son of David? Where is this Christ going to come from? And at this point... They should have already understood that Jesus is the greater than Solomon. Jesus is the beloved Son of God, and yet they're still asking the question. So the context here puts their question in a very ironic light. 
They're asking for his identity. And notice what they're claiming. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, isn't this often the excuse a lot of people bring up for not believing in the gospel? You see it in a very sophisticated form where philosophers or atheists will say that, well, I don't have enough evidence to believe in God. I haven't heard enough. I have more questions that haven't been answered to my own satisfaction. Or uh, perhaps in our own personal lives when we're convicted by the Scriptures, perhaps we have a conversation with a brother, perhaps even in a sermon, something is said that convicts us, and yet we raise these doubts and say, what does he really mean by this? What's really being said? I need it declared more plainly as if it hasn't been plain enough. And so they're bringing this excuse up to sort of justify themselves for not believing in Christ. Now, as a personal application here, a practical application, this spirit that they show is really the spirit of the donkey. It's the spirit of the rebellious one. You ever heard somebody use the phrase that, you know, when, when somebody's not doing their job, you've got to light a fire under them? You ever heard this phrase before? That goes back to taking care of donkeys. Because sometimes donkeys and mules are so stubborn that they won't do what you want that you actually have to build a fire under their belly and light it to get them to move. That's how stubborn mules and donkeys can be. Likewise, ourselves, we can be this stubborn when it comes to believing in Christ. We, we raise all these kind of questions and we have this Uh, This mindset that if it doesn't satisfy our intellect, if it doesn't satisfy our curiosity, I'm not going to believe it. But that's the opposite of a sheep-like faith, which Christ begins to explain here. He goes on in verse 25 to explain to them, I've already told you, and you do not believe. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Christ says, I've already done that. How has he done that? He's done that through the preaching that he's engaged in up to this point. He's done that through his conversation with Nicodemus. He's done that in the debates that he's had with them all the way through the Gospel of John up to this point. And they do not believe. Then he goes to talk about one of the causes of faith. Now, when we say a cause of faith, what we are talking about is faith Your exercise of faith is based upon certain evidences. There are certain things that lead us to believe the truth of something. Now, I realize in our circles and in our tradition in the OPC, some of us, most of us, hold to what's called Vantillian apologetics. There's another kind of apologetics called evidential apologetics. Sometimes I think this debate is exaggerated. There's not really that much of a difference between the two schools of thought. If you understand Van Til rightly, he does say there is a place for evidence. He just has a different account for why evidences are valid. What I want to point out here, though, for us is that evidences have a place in the Christian life. Notice the evidences he points to. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The outward miracles that Christ has performed are a ground and a cause for us to believe. Now, what are the works that Christ is referring to? 
the previous section, they, they reference the most immediate miracle. He healed a blind man. He gave a blind man his sight back. Some of the other miracles that Christ performed are feeding the 5,000, raising the dead, uh, and all of the other healing and uh, raising miracles that Christ performed. These are the works that he's referring to. But notice, the function of these works is to bear witness to Christ. The works of Christ, these kind of works that bear witness to him, did not cease with the end of his earthly ministry. As the book of Acts opens, Luke writes in the book of Acts, In my previous treatise, O Theophilus, I told you the things that Jesus Christ began to do. And then he starts the book of Acts describing the rest of what Jesus Christ was doing. So through the acts of the apostles, their healing, their preaching, the miracles, casting out demons, those are also the works of Christ. But there are others today that we can look to which are one of the grounds for our faith. Consider what Christ told the Pharisees. You remember in the Gospel of Matthew, the Pharisees come to him again asking for a sign. What sign do you give that we should believe in you? And Christ responds and says, no sign shall be given to an adulterous and sinful generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what was the sign of the prophet Jonah? All the Sunday school students here should know the story of Jonah. He was swallowed by the big fish. He was resurrected, as it were, back onto the shore. And then what happens? Jonah then goes to the Gentiles, preaches the word of God, and the Gentiles repent and believe. The sign of the prophet Jonah is not just the resurrection from the dead. It is also the success of the gospel ministry among the Gentiles. And so, all of you gathered here this afternoon... All of the churches that exist in the Gentile world are one of the works of Christ that bear witness to the truth of Christ. Let me put it to you this way. The fact that the church exists proves the gospel. The fact that the church exists proves the gospel. Now, we may miss the force of this, but think about the history of the church from the days of the apostles to today. Blood, fire, and sword. Temptation, seduction, and uh, attempts to wipe it out completely. All throughout the history of the church, the church has been hounded by Satan, either through sword or seduction, and yet she is still here. Everything Satan has done to try and destroy the church has not worked. Even as our confession says, Even though the visible church may become less visible at certain ages, there will always be a church to worship God according to his will on the earth. It will never fail. Not only the church, but the scriptures also. These books that you hold in your hand are one of the works of Christ. You know, our confession speaks about the scriptures having been providentially preserved through all ages. Now think about the history of the scriptures. Blood, fire, and sword. Satan attempting to destroy the scriptures from the face of the earth, and yet here today they still are, preserved in all of their integrity. You know, I've been doing a little bit of study on the Dead Sea Scrolls, 
One of the Dead Sea Scrolls that has been found is about a thousand years older than the Septuagint. The Septuagint was written about 200 years before the New Testament. So what you have in the Dead Sea Scrolls is a piece of parchment with the scriptures written on it that dates back to 1200 B.C. We have that physically in our museums. There is no other ancient book that has physical witnesses that are that old and that verify the truth of what we have in our hands today. No other book has that kind of witness testimony. There's other things that we could talk about, but I'm bringing these things up to you to show you that the works of Christ are one cause of faith, but they are not a sufficient cause of faith. Christ then goes on to say, verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. There are liberal scholars who hate the Lord Jesus and his church who could tell you more than you would ever want to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are historians who are not redeemed that could tell you all the details of church history and how Christians were tortured and forced to blaspheme more than you could ever imagine to know. They know these works of Christ better than anyone, and yet they don't believe in Christ. Why? Well, Christ says, because they are not of my sheep. They don't have a sheep like faith. The reference to the sheep in this chapter is a reference to the elect. It is only the elect who are brought to believe in Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Christ will then say in verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. As we saw last week, this language of knowing is actually the language of loving. Christ loves his sheep. He sends his voice to his sheep And his sheep respond to his voice. The reason people believe in Christ is because Christ gives them the ability to believe. They were elected from all eternity. They were set apart in the eternal decree of God. And when the gospel comes to them and they hear the voice of Christ, they respond in faith. That is a sheep-like faith. A sheep-like faith. Faith comes from the shepherd of the sheep. It is not a work of the sheep themselves. Now, at this point, we need to recognize that the cause of our faith is not us. The reason that we believe in Christ is not because of who we are. It's because of Christ's work in us. This should humble us, but it should also encourage us. One, those that truly believe in Christ are enabled to believe by the power of Christ. Now, he's going to talk about the benefits that come from this, but simply at this point, we need to recognize those who believe in Christ believe in him because of the power of Christ. As I said, this should humble us and cause us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, because none of us came into the faith except by Christ's love and his power. But this should also encourage us. You see, you can present evidences. You can present arguments. You can present all of the reasons why somebody should believe 
to your friends, and to your relatives. You can even present them to yourself. Psalm 42, David engages in this. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Hope thou in the Lord. We should be doing this with ourselves as well. But if you present all of these reasons, ultimately they will not be enough. It must be the power of Christ that brings us to faith. And because he does it, he's the one that keeps us secure and he gives us the benefits of faith. Verse 28 through 30, he now talks about these benefits of a sheep-like faith. The first benefit is that they are given eternal life. Notice, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Because faith begins with Christ, faith is sustained by Christ. You know, it's, it's often taught that because God is the creator, he is also the providential governor. The doctrine of providence and the doctrine of creation go hand in hand. If God is creator, he's also the sustainer and maintainer of his creation. Well, Christ is saying the same thing about your faith. If Christ is the creator of your faith, he's also the one that sustains your faith. He says that they will be given eternal life. In the Gospel of John, eternal life is a phrase that talks about the totality of salvation. Eternal life refers to all of the benefits of Christ. But he gives us an even clearer definition in John 17. John 17, verses 1 through 3, Christ is praying to his Father before he goes to the cross. Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him, that you should give eternal life to his sheep, to the elect. Verse 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So when Christ says that he gives his sheep eternal life, what he's saying is that he gives you the knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. He reveals to you what God is like, and in knowing what God is like, that is life eternal. Now notice also, Especially in this context, the word know is deeper than the intellect. The word know refers to an intimate, loving knowledge of one another. When Christ says, I know my sheep, he doesn't mean I've got a list and I can tell you all of their names from memory. What Christ is saying is that I know all of their names, I know all of their faults, I know everything that they're going through, and I love them and die for them. Likewise, to be given eternal life and to know God the Father is not only to know stuff about God, but it's to know Him personally. It's to love Him in response to the love that He's given to us. This is one of the first benefits of a sheep-like faith. The book of Hebrews, we haven't gotten there yet, but verse 11 speaks about... We'll turn there in... uh, 
Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, the author writes about faith. He says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Skipping down to verse 6. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. One of the benefits of faith, a sheep-like faith, is that you know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews is describing this here. It is only by this kind of faith that you can seek God and be rewarded by God. But it starts by believing. It starts by taking Him at His word. I want to challenge you with something on this, just on this note. Think about your lives. What's a sin that you struggle with? Or what's a, a decision that you're waiting on? What, what is some area of your life that is not in line with the Scriptures? And think about the ways you've attempted to deal with this. Maybe you've tried different techniques. Maybe you've tried different systems. Maybe you've tried to work harder at it, and yet you've neglected to pray over it. I want to challenge you to take whatever that area is in your life, specifically if there's a besetting sin, Look at the promises that God makes in reference to that sin and in faith pray those promises to God and wait upon Him to reward you for it. I'm not talking about a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying God's going to shower gold ducats from the heavens to, to fill your bank account. But what I am saying is you may not be enjoying eternal life as much as you could because you're not believing God. You're not trusting in His promises. God is not rewarding you because you're not believing in Him. But Christ says a sheep-like faith believes in Christ and receives eternal life as one of its benefits. I challenge you to put that into practice and see if God doesn't answer that prayer. The second thing he, he references here is eternal life, but also eternal security. Now, I know that phrase and this doctrine can be dangerous, some people abuse eternal security to say, well, it doesn't matter how we live. Once saved, always saved. That's not what Christ is teaching. Notice what he said about sheep-like faith, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. They walk through this life following the shepherd all the way to glory. Because they are following Christ and they're on the path to glory, that means they haven't arrived at glory yet. There is a, a time period that Christ's sheep have to go through. Well, because we have to go through this time period, because we have to follow Him, there's danger. 
There's a possibility that people can fall away from Christ. We have seen people in our own lives who professed to know Christ, and yet they fell into temptation and departed from the faith. And so it might be tempting to think, well, I can believe in Christ today, but I may not believe in Him tomorrow. Well, Christ says, (coughs) my sheep follow me. Nobody snatches them out of my hand. The wolf and the thief cannot get to my sheep. And then verse 29, my father, who has given them to me in the decree of election, he who chose these sheep, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. My son likes to walk uh, on our steps, and if you've ever been to my house, we have very large stone steps, and there's two concrete uh, sort of footers next to the steps, and there's a railing that goes down it. Well, the concrete slab is, is the perfect width for a kid's rear, And it's the perfect little place for them to walk down. Well, sometimes when the kids are trying to walk down, especially when they're learning to walk, they're a little bit shaky. They want to walk down this path, but there's danger. There's a stone step over here, and there's a two-foot drop into mulch over there. So what does he do? He's, He's standing there shakily, and he'll reach out for my hand. And once I have his hand in my hand, he's much more confident. He knows that if I slip, Dad has me. Well, what Christ is saying is that when you're walking in the path as one of Christ's sheep, you reach out your hand for Him, His hand is on the right side, and His Father's hand is on the left side. And nobody can snatch you out of their hands. Nobody can steal you from Christ if you are one of His sheep. Now, He says this because He is greater than Solomon. He is the greater shepherd than David's own son was. Verse 30, he tells us why that is. I and my Father are one. The reason that Christ can give you eternal life and the reason He preserves you all the days of your life is because He is Jehovah. He is eternal along with His Father. That's why He's greater than Solomon. That's why His death brings you life. And that's why he secures you all of your days. Therefore, trust in him. Put your faith in Christ and exercise your faith by praying his promises, believing his promises, seeking him in prayer, and he will reward you if you do so in faith. Well, what we've seen is that this is a sheep-like faith. This is the kind of faith that God's people have. They believe because they hear the voice of Christ, and in believing, they are secured, having been given eternal life and having God the Father and God the Son protecting them. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is greater than Solomon, and we thank you that he is eternal, just as you are eternal And that in Him we have two persons of the Trinity holding our hand as we walk through this life. And we know that along with the first two, we also have the third person of the Trinity dwelling in our hearts and quickening us in our faith. We pray that you would do so this day and help us to serve you all of our days. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.